0: Hello, hello, beautiful plant-powered people, and welcome back to the Plant-Powered People podcast brought to you by Plant-Based on a Budget and World of Vegan. I'm Michelle Kane, your co-host and founder of World of Vegan. And I'm Tony Okamoto, your co-host
1: and founder of Plant-Based on a Budget.
0: On this show, we talk with plant-powered people from all around the world about various aspects of plant-based living to empower you to learn and explore and evolve in a kind sustainable and healthy direction all while eating the most delicious food and having a ton of fun. So today we're really excited to bring on a special guest, a rabbi. We're going to be picking his brain about all things Jewish vegan, being a ve- Jewish vegan, and navigating those territories. Um I was raised Jewish and Tony's partner is Jewish and so this is going to be fun to dive into to what that means.
1: We are chatting with Rabbi Dr. Shmuel Yanklowitz, who is an Orthodox rabbi, activist, and author. Newsweek named him one of the 50 most influential rabbis in America. He earned a master's degree at Harvard University, a second master's degree in Jewish philosophy at Yeshiva University, a doctorate from Columbia University. In epistemology and moral development, and has taught seminars at UCLA Law School and Barnard College. He is really incredible, and we can't wait to chat with him. We hope you enjoy the conversation
0: before we jump into the episode, we want to give a big thank you to our sponsors of today's show, making this show possible. Thank you to Maxine's Heavenly and Natrive. Maxine's Heavenly, if you listen to our show, you hear us talk about this often, but they make homemade style cookies that are sweetened naturally. They use unrefined coconut sugar and dates to sweeten their cookies. And they have soft baked cookies that you can find in many natural food stores. And then they also recently launched their crispy cookies available at maxinesheavenly.com. My favorites are the ones with speculose in it. Of course, they have cinnamon speculus cookies that are kind of crunchy and just so sweet and delicious. Those are my fave. Um, and then they also, their soft baked cookies are certified kosher through Earth Kosher.
1: I love the crispy chocolate chip cookies these days. I started out with First, preferring the soft-baked cookies, but these crispy cookies are really, really tasty. If you want to try them, you can check them out at Maxine'sHeavenly.com and use the code PLANTS25, P-L-A-N-T-S 25, and that will get you 25% off. Hi, Rabbi Shmuley. Welcome to the Plant Powered People podcast.
2: Hi, Tony and Michelle. Happy to be here.
1: Thank you for, for joining us today. Where are you calling from?
2: I'm in Scottsdale, Arizona.
1: Oh, Scottsdale, Arizona. I've never been... Oh, I have been there. It's by Phoenix.
2: Yeah, about okay. 15, 20 minutes north.
1: Cool. That's a nice area. I really liked it. Uh, it. Okay. So how... Okay, gosh, there's so much to start with you. Let's start with how you became more interested in plant-based living
2: love it love it I was so disinterested for so long it's hard to imagine that I spent over two decades of my life thinking about it n- not at all like not like oh occasionally it popped up like somebody told me something nothing I had no exposure in my life until like uh, like over 20 years old w- of like seeing any movie having any vegetarian or vegan in my life like I- I understanding if there's any moral or health or environmental issue involved at all literally no clue and, um, and then, it, and if I did meet those people, I was just, I, I just, you know, kind of thought it was, was weird or different. Everyone's got their own thing, you know? And, um, and, and it wasn't until, um, I was in this grad school seminar where I heard this professor talking about the Aristotelian, neo-Aristotelian capabilities approach and how any being that has a capability to pursue a certain means in their life a certain joy a certain actualization and we block that actualization or that joy or meaning like that's something that we've done a wrong and, and 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 she connected that to like how we relate to other beings humans and and non non-human animals and and it really woke me up to and like immediately it was like immediate it was i was in a transformative stage of my life but like immediately i went um I went vegetarian, and then like a week later, I was like eating a can of tuna fish, and I was just looking at it, and I was like, "What am I eating here?" And it, like, I and then things started going quickly, and then I had a number of years like that, and then like seven or eight years later, my my wife and I went vegan on our wedding day. Um, actually, actually, uh, this Sunday is our eleventh anniversary. And so um, we're celebrating our veganism. Also, I mean, most importantly, celebrating our marriage. But <laughs> but secondarily, celebrating <laughs> the veganism. And um, uh, and it's it's just been a wild ride. And now our kids are all vegan too.
1: That is amazing. And Malzotov, on the the beautiful marriage that you've created, I, you. I follow Thank you on on social media, and it just seems like you are really happy. And also, you share that happiness with your community. And that's really special. Thank you. Okay. So I feel like I missed, we missed a step. I should have asked you first, if if you could tell us a little bit about your journey in life, because I feel right. like what we're going to, what we're going to dive into and how you've become such a compassionate person ties into some other deeper places within you. So can you talk about how your journey has Transformed you into the person you are today?
2: Totally, totally. Thank you. So, I grew up in an interfaith home with one Jewish parent and one Christian parent. That was a very important part of my story and was kind of pushed to make a choice in ways that were partially liberating and partially um, challenging. And around the age of 10 or 11, I made the choice to pursue the Jewish path while continuing to remain very close with Christian family. And, um, uh, and I was kind of growing in my spirituality and in my religious understanding and in my social action. And when I was in college in Texas, I emerged more deeply both in religious spaces and in social change spaces. And a lot of that intersected in food because I was involved in development, uh, development projects in the global south, thinking about sustainable agriculture, and I was thinking about keeping kosher for the first time in like a really deep way, and um, and I was living on my own, so nobody was making me food. I had to figure out like how to like live in a world of food where it doesn't just show up. <laughs> and so the combination of all those things, like injustice and equity, and in religion and spirituality, and in like self sustenance um, kind of moved me towards some of those questions. And, um, I just, I I was on a corporate path to go corporate. And then I had this like big awakening that I wanted to be a part of healing and part of learning. And no one ever would have guessed me for the first 20 years of life that I would be a rabbi. Like it's the last thing anybody would have guessed. (laughs) And moving on that path was really empowering for me to kind of find my voice as a teacher and as an activist. So that's the short that, version. <laughs> that is
0: so beautiful. I I it's just it's unexpected. I I always assume that the rabbis that I've had in my life mm. have just been on that path since they were born almost. You just assume mm. that that's just been cultivated since childhood and I think it's such a unique uh, breath of air to just have an experience where you started without a path defined for you and you learned and explored and chose that on your own. I think that's really beautiful.
2: Mm -hmm. Thank you. You know, I'm a big junkie for people who engage in life transformation, whether it's religious conversion or whether it's, you know, becoming plant-based or whether it's, you know, major career changes. I, I have a lot of respect for people who just like are steady, like they are what they grew up as um like that's great you know but i i'm a big junkie for for those who like really embrace transformation and that's certainly a part of my story
1: have you found that your pl- plant-based life and your life as a rabbi go well together or has it been challenging at all
2: ah i love that so i would say um by and large It is additive and complementary and generative in that um, my Jewish understanding, my Jewish values reinforce, they give me kind of a, a deep spiritual and religious framework for thinking about my veganism in kind of a deep, very holistic and comprehensive kind of way. And vice versa, that the veganism also creates a framework for my religion to fit in because Judaism... Is not fundamentally pacifist, or uh, it's certainly anti-violence. But as a pacifist, and it's broader. But like my veganism is is about an ethic of non-violence. Like we can't do violence to bodies, in a way that kind of moves my Judaism in that in that path as well. So that's the short answer. The first answer is that like it's really um, very helpful to have them supporting each other. The the second answer is that like it's really hard to be in Jewish spaces that don't appreciate um, what seems to me to be such a deeply Jewish ethic. And that's hard to be in those spaces and, and frustrating. In in many vegan spaces I feel alienated when there's not kosher sensibilities. And in many kosher spaces I feel alienated when there's not vegan sensibilities. And so there is kind of a strain there. But I've used that strain as like as, as a change maker to like try to move the needle forward where like, we have these programs to try to help the Jewish community think about these things.
0: It's interesting because um, I grew up Jewish, and so since I was mm-hmm. a kid, I'd go to to um, temple, and you know, I, I even went to Jewish middle school. So we had Jewish studies, mm-hmm. and throughout that experience for me, and this might have just been because it was in the Bay-, Bay Area and it was a pretty liberal area anyway. But a mm-hmm. lot of what I learned through that was um, sort of ethics and how to apply them in real life. Like nowhere in my schools uh, did I learn these things, but in, in my Jewish teachings, it'd be like, you know, what happens if you find a dollar on the street? You know, do you keep that? Or do you try and find the owner? Can you find like it? would? I would learn to look at these scenarios and try and figure out how to make ethical decisions. And I think it's so fascinating that that was such a big, big part of the teachings that I received through my education on the Jewish side of things um, that I think most people don't. And I'm curious because that was my experience. I just sort of attribute it to like, oh my gosh, that's, that's a huge fundamental part of, of being Jewish. But I'm curious from a broader perspective, is it like, how does compassion and ethics and social justice, how are these things incorporated into Jewish teachings on a broader scale?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, you know, like every, um, like every religious group, um, you have, um, those who are fundamentalists, those who are more or less assimilated, um, and those who are kind of in a middle space. And so there's many Jews who are not involved in Jewish spaces at all. Maybe have a very loose Jewish identity. There are those who are like really fundamentalists and don't shift anything from what, you know, they understand tradition has told them to do or in any way. And then there's this middle space. Um, And in this middle space, I think like the predominant vibe really is that Judaism is about our social responsibility in a whole bunch of ways of allyship and of pro-democracy and of tikkun olam repairing the world. And that's what I, that's what brought me in. And that's what continues to kind of animate and excite me about this is that like religion is, should not primarily be an opiate for the masses, but rather a source of discomfort, a source of agitation, a source of challenge for us to not accept the world as as it is, but to dream of a world that could be.
0: Wow. That is really powerful. Even just an opiate for the masses, those words like really hit. It really hit because it is we all are seeking just a source of comfort. And oftentimes yes. the comfort that we provide ourselves is by blocking out what's real, what's reality, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. doling our brain or just allowing our brains to turn off and not have to focus on like the the different weights around us and responsibilities around us in the world. And it it is a powerful thing to have I think as vegans, a lot of us go through this alone. We carry a lot of responsibility and weight of what what we want to do to help those who are suffering around us. But to have a, a source of community, we're in that together um, with a goal beyond, your, beyond yourself is so powerful and so beautiful. I love that.
1: I grew up non-religious and uh, I had a Catholic grandmother and later in my childhood, I, my dad remarried and she was also Catholic my, my stepmom is Catholic and um, and it wasn't until I would say I married my husband who's who's Jewish and <clears throat> started learning more about different traditions and things that are really important to to people religiously that I started to take on some of of the Jewish traditions that are are very extremely important like uh, I I would say three years ago I started uh, observing Yom Kippur and I take the day off I fast and I also do online services and I was really really s- surprised by what I had put in my head of what I was about to experience versus what actually happened. And what actually happened was exactly what you were saying. We were challenged to go out in the world and make our community better. And the rabbi was taking real life current events and providing actionable steps to making the suffering that was happening within our own community lessened. And it, like I get goosebumps even thinking about it. It's it's such a it's a, it's such a beautiful thing to empower your community to do good in the world.
2: Yeah, you know I love that because I think communities are you know it's not a, it's not a super new trend that communities are at risk. Um, that you know people are engaging with each other more technologically. People are moving towards smaller micro communities or just family and close friends. And communities are struggling um, in a lot of ways for a lot of reasons, even before COVID. And religion is one of the last strongholds of powerful community where people support each other in kind of a systemic way. And there's a lot of bad religion out there that puts out more hate than love and puts out more dogma than open thinking. Um, But there's also really powerful religion of, of all forms that can you know, help to motivate people to live with a more elevated spiritual consciousness.
1: I would love to talk more about how the current food system conflicts with Jewish teachings and and Jewish morals.
2: Great, great, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think that... Um, It would be hard to claim that uh, killing an animal for food is itself problematic Jewishly. Um, Because while it's true that the Garden of Eden was a vegan diet that's well known, it's also true that later in the Torah, later in the Hebrew scriptures, it becomes permitted to eat meat if it's kosher. Um, And so... One may argue for a form of Jewish progress, which is opposed to any killing of animals, but that would not be the mainstream sort of Jewish theology. Um, however, the food systems as it exists today would be completely uh, antithetical to um, to Jewish values at large. The factory farming industry would have fine li- li- n- zero justification in Jewish law for how, um, animals are, are, are ultimately treated. And so, um, I think that many people think, oh, you know, if they're a kosher keeping Jew, well, there's a kosher certification on this product, so it's all good. And there, that's kind of an assimilation into, into corporate America that, um, that sort of thinks like, okay, however, something is produced, like the question is really just about cost. And that's, and that's pretty unfortunate. There are some kind of, um, alternative models that are being suggested in the kosher world. But it seems clear to me, given kind of, um, the fact that we have, you know, tens of billions of land animals killed for food each year and done in the most gr- grotesque of ways that the new kosher is, is vegan. And that that's a new evolution, uh, excuse me, a new evolution of how the Torah is applied in our era.
0: It's interesting to look at Israel as kind of a case study because Mm -hmm. we've seen, at least sitting here in America, reading the headlines of what's going on in Israel, it seems like the vegan scene there is exploding and just like, it it almost feels to me, and I could be just reading into things based on my own experience um, growing up Jewish, but it seems like people are more open and quick to recognize the suffering of others and take action in their own lives to change and then also to innovate and create pathways for it to become like normal. Um, so I'm curious your perspective on that and and what you've seen happen in, in Israel and if there's any kind of takeaways there.
2: Absolutely. Like I've read multiple times that Israel has the, mo- the highest number of vegans per capita. And yeah. I, was ju- I was just there a few weeks ago and it continue every every year I go it continues to explode in those numbers where there's this little green leaf next to the vegan options on menus and it and it just grows in the number of places I see doing that and the number of options I see available there and just the innovation they have in the in the clean meat um, sector and um uh, and it's just it's exciting to see like how mainstream that's become where, in ways that I haven't seen in America yet.
0: Definitely. And it's also like, I mean, a a part of growing up Jewish is you're very aware of the tragedies of the world. I mean, you learn about the Holocaust. You maybe even have family that went through just the most horrible thing, and you become aware of what human beings are capable of 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 a whole society of people with our same similar DNA are able to turn off compassion for other people and just follow procedures. and And realizing and knowing that, I wonder if that helps just understand, okay, like maybe we don't put all of our trust in just like the government is making sure everything's done well and, and oh, questioning yeah. things more and then yeah. just taking action to stand up for those who don't have a voice who are being exploited.
2: Totally. Totally. I love that. I love that. And um, I think that's that's exactly right. There's always kind of a little bit of a skepticism or a questioning of people in power. Um, that's a deep part of Jewish ethos. Even Abraham himself, the first Jew, challenges God, whether God is just. And I think that notion that like we don't just accept like that's a big part of Jewish culture, like to, we don't embrace dogmas, we have to really challenge the systems. And I am opposed to um, 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 equating the Holocaust with treatment of animals. I know there are even, uh, you know, a, a small handful of vocal Holocaust survivors who have done that. Even though I'm opposed to equating that in any way, once one has had the sensitivity towards what Mass systems of slaughter look like. You've been to concentration camps and you've seen gas chambers. You've seen like their their train systems. Like you see how it operates. It really deeply sensitizes you towards systems of oppression and like technologies of destruction in, in a way that there's clear similarities in how those systems operate. Um, so one more point to what you said, which is just that. Um, I I really think that the mystical dimension of ethics here is seeing beyond the surface and being able to, you know, um, see the invisible person and be an advocate for those who aren't seen and be an advocate to give voice to those who aren't heard.
0: I love that. Um, I'm also so just personally so bummed because I did go to Israel on birthright years ago and I was vegan, but at the time it was before it was really, really taken on. And so yes. and I, I went with my birthright group. So we were just kind of like, you know, wherever we were, we weren't out pursuing the cool vegan options there. But now I've heard there's even a vegan birthright group that started, and it's just so cool. I recently, last year, went to an all vegan bat mitzvah, and it's it's just so cool seeing um, individuals take initiative to help, j- just create opportunity to to live more compassionately and in in a sense of community. On, on the Jewish front and in Israel, which is pretty neat. I'm curious if you have tips. So when I was in Israel, um, I, I I don't personally keep kosher, but the parv and kosher labels can be helpful. And in some ways, maybe you think they're helpful, but they're not helpful in navigating what can you eat. So if you are using those labels, do you have any tips on how to use them to try and figure out what's vegan? Like what's on the table? Oh my God.
2: Oh, yeah, totally. Just so for friends who enter into kosher spaces in israel or or in America or wherever, um, the Jewish tradition is to separate milk and meat. And it was an early form, one might argue, of animal welfare in that the idea was don't kill a kid in its mother's milk, which is to say, um be sensitive to the animal's experience, even while you you're gonna you may be benefiting from you know, what they're, I guess, what they're offering you. Um, But, and so this idea of waiting six hours traditionally after eating meat before eating something that is dairy. And so that means if you enter into a kosher meat establishment, you know that anything you order on the menu will not have dairy in it. Um, And it means if you're entering into a dairy establishment, you know, there'll be no traces of meat in it also. And if you're entering into a par of environment, um, although there's not really par of restaurants unless they're vegan, of course, but par of means neither milk nor meat. That's what kind of what that means. Um, so the, obviously the only tricky hidden parts of that that the system doesn't account for um, would be, you know, kind of on the on the front of eggs um, and of honey. That's eggs are the are, would be the, the most common challenge that one would have to kind of navigate through the menu.
0: Yeah, that's great. So yeah, if you're in Israel and you see things or wherever and see things labeled par like a chocolate bar, that pretty much means vegan, which is extremely yes. helpful when and you're navigating, one, one especially reasons, if you don't speak the, the language.
2: That, one of the reasons the kosher establishments love the impossible or beyond or like these mm. meat alternatives is, is because a dairy place can serve it. You know, there's people who might want to have something that has that taste or experience, Um, But it's a dairy place. And so the dairy dairy kosher places have really embraced those options.
0: Yeah. And even Tofuti. I think Tofuti started as a Jewish brand or is a Jewish brand. And they wanted to provide a non-dairy option so that you could eat it with milk (laughs) or with meat. I mean, um, but because mm-hmm. they make like those tofutti ice cream sandwiches, it was kind of like the yes. first vegan ice cream that was around back in the day before there was any vegan ice cream. Um, and I didn't realize, but uh, until
1: later, that that's, that's why it was started, which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. On mm. a side note, they were way before their time. I remember they had these yeah. drumsticks, which no longer are in existence. And they were so good. They had um, like chocolate filled in the cone, so yes, you eat you eat the goodness, and then at the end you have this last bite of chocolate. Oh, I wish I wish I still <laughs> had those. Okay, so one huge thing as someone who is not Jewish entering into a Jewish family and lifestyle is holidays. Uh, that's when I see a lot of family, and that's when we host and. Uh, I've hosted four Passover dinners and Rosh Hashanah dinners, and and I came from not having any background. Uh, So I would love to dive in to that a little bit more. But first, let's start with if you're not hosting, how do you politely navigate Jewish holidays and traditions as the only vegan in the room?
2: that um uh, thank you for sharing that because you're right that is not easy if it's a potluck luck experience of course one could bring their own food um but in a case where one is a guest um surprisingly there are still hosts in the world who don't think to ask about food preferences um and could be invited without ever being without ever being asked if somebody has any um allergies or Dietary requirements, and so that can be really awkward if someone shows up and finds little to nothing available for them to eat. Awkward for the host and awkward for the guest. And so, I do think it's really important to bring up that conversation from the front. Uh, sometimes I'll find myself saying something like, "Oh, thank you so much for the invitation, um, but we understand it may actually be challenging for you because there's six of us in the family and we're all vegan, and you know." Um, on a rare occasion, they'll respond, oh, you're right, we're not equipped for that. And more commonly, they'll respond, oh, no, thank you for letting us know, we'd love to accommodate that. Um, so so that's, that's one way I might frame it. The other way I might frame it is around um, if there's a way we can support, like, oh, given that we're vegan, is there something we can contribute to the meal that, you know, and you know, that kind of set can ease some of the tensions. But the truth is, it's like that old joke. How do you know someone's vegan? Don't worry, they've already told you. And so the truth (laughs) is, like, everybody usually knows we're vegan already if they're inviting us to something. And so it's pretty rare that that emerges. However, sometimes we'll have a guest who, you know, um, will not not know. And they themselves will tell us. And we say, don't worry, we got you covered. Um, And so... um, there are these growing experiences around Passover and the like where there's, you know, vegan, vegan saders and the like, but where there's not, it really can be lonely and alienating. And I know for someone like me, I'm very comfortable eating in a setting that has people taking different approaches, uh, but others I know don't, aren't comfortable. Like if Passover is about liberation, like for someone who really, you know, feels this strongly, they might be uncomfortable being at a, at a meat meal, And so I know there's people who have different comfort levels there. And so not super easy, not super easy. And so we're trying to create that cultural change right now.
1: And uh, Michelle and I have talked about this on the podcast before, but one way that you can feel empowered is by hosting it yourself. Most of us have the ability to take action and make it so that we are the hosts and can provide a vegan Seder and also provide that place of comfort for other, for other vegans who may want to participate, but feel uncomfortable with, um, with eating around meat and dairy. And uh, I know that we have a friend who, whose family has their own Seder, but came to ours this year because it was all vegan and his family understood Mm -hmm. and supported why he would want to drive two hours to eat with not his own family so that he can feel comfortable. So do you have tips on creating your own uh, traditions?
2: Yes. So in my experience, it's so empowering and beautiful to create these traditions for oneself or one family, one's family and such a great service to others because people are desperately seeking community. And one of the most fun places to be in community is at the dinner table um, where people can celebrate together and talk and enjoy good food. And um, and so I think there's so many fun ways to do that. It doesn't have to be the way was always modeled, modeled for us as children, the way to incorporate games and conversation and learning and different you know, types of food experiences and diversity of people at the table. And there's so many great ways to do it, to be really intentional and thoughtful about what kind of experience we want to have and what kind of experience we want others to have and to try to harmonize those together. And, um, and I think that, uh, Jews love to debate and learn. And so I think sometimes putting a, a Jewish text on the table, um, where people can kind of read it and discuss their ideas or, Um, is kind of a a really, a really fun way to kind of make, make the table a learning space and and a conversation space that's kind of values driven. Um, And so, and in addition to that, like, I think finding ways to put out there that this is going to be kind of a vegan celebration and attract some of those folks who are, are are really kind of alienated or alone, which is, can be really difficult at, at holiday times.
1: I would
0: love to dive into a couple holidays in particular. Uh, the big one being Passover, right? We've got a Seder plate and we got to fill that up. And everyone has sort of different techniques for what to put in place of the bone, in place of different, uh, the egg. I'm curious what you do. Uh, Tony, I know you've posted pictures of yours before. We have a Passover, vegan Passover guide on World of Vegan as well. But what do you do for your Seder plate?
2: Um, so uh, before I share, I'm, I'm I'm curious what you have mostly heard and mostly seen or done yourselves. <laughs>
0: uh, mine's pretty funny. My mom actually started doing this when I went vegan, but she would just, this is silly. She would just draw a picture of a bone and write bone on it and cut it out uh-huh. and put it on a uh-huh. plate. Right. And I think the first year she did the same thing with an egg, but I've since seen people do like, you know, they'll do the, like the potato that looks like an egg, which I think has mm-hmm. similar representations for the meaning. Um, yeah. Tony, what do you do?
1: I use the Just Egg bottle. and do <laughs> remember um, that picture. Stick, stick, stick it right there. And then for the bone, <laughs> we do... Um, Eddie has these whimsy bones that look like bones, and I, I put that there.
2: Oh, very cool! Wow, I, you know it's funny. I, I just assumed you'd say that you do the same thing I do, but so it's it's cool to hear what what both of you have done. Um, yeah, so our 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 model has been to use a beat instead of the shank bone um, because the Talmud itself, the the rabbinic work of the Talmud itself, mentions the beat. And, um, so that's worked well for us, just like a s- slice of of beet. And then for in place of the egg, we use a mushroom, uh, a cooked mushroom. And that's similar to the potato idea you shared is that it's it's white, it's round and circular. it's small, and it kind of represents this, you know, this spring and kind of like a circle of life.
1: I
0: love that you're not signaling to everyone at the table. We're using a piece of paper with a stick figure drawing of things on it because yeah. we can't use what's real, and instead finding something that's equally meaningful, that's equally beautiful, that's just uh, has the significance there without <laughs> without uh, yeah the the awkward replacement component. That's amazing. Yeah. We're definitely going to do that Thank next you. time we have a seder, and awesome. then okay, matzah Okay, we're running out of time, so we'll be kind of swift, but. Uh, uh, just a quick note on recipes. Almost any recipe that you're making, you can find a vegan version of it. Tony and I actually have a recipe for vegan hala and the Friendly Vegan Cookbook. I actually just made that really recently. Um, I veganized noodle kugel, which was really fun. That was something that I always ate growing up. Growing up. And like lox was something that was a, a lot of like you know, after temple brunches or whatever, locks with bagels. And so we have a recipe for carrot locks. So there's a lot of ways to get creative with recipes. Latkas are so easy to veganize. Um, but I'm wondering if you have any super favorite recipes that you'd want to point people to that you're like, you've got to try this at your next celebration.
2: Oh my goodness. Um, so many things. Um, but I know that um, in regards to matzo balls, uh, we get that question all the time. Um, and of course, there's so many great ways to make vegan matzo balls. And um, and it's not always easy. I know, um, wh- um, what do you both use to make things more compact? I know, I've heard some people use applesauce. I've heard some people use potato starch. It's the most common matzo ball, I think, I've heard people just not use anything in place of the egg, just kind of make it a little more compact. Is there anything you both have heard on that front? Or um,
0: I have made and failed matzo ball soup about a hundred times. They just they oh, look yes, so perfect yes. and then they disintegrate. Yes. So beware yes. if you're making yes. it for the first time, don't make it when you're going to be serving it. Make it right. first for yourself. Um, we have a recipe on World of Vegan. I, I'm pretty sure it uses... Uh, silken tofu um, and I've made it and it turned out great. So that right. one works, but I know there's a lot of great. different perspectives. And Tony, great. you have a on yeah. there too, right? Yep.
1: Yes, mine also has silken tofu, but I know that uh, if you're kosher, you don't eat silken tofu. Is that right?
2: Well, What is that, silken?
1: Uh, it's tofu. It's tofu, but it's, it's a lot softer. It's like soft oh. tofu. And um, some people don't eat beans. So I've heard in my comments, uh, we, we, we eat them. And, uh, and so our matzo balls have silken tofu. And yeah,
2: I'm I'm looking online. Silken tofu is kosher. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. For Passover. um, Oh, oh yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. Good point. Right. Yeah, uh, so, oh, yeah. We, we tend to eat matzo ball soup year round, not just on Passover. So oh, that's why okay. I wasn't. Got it. Yeah. got it, got it, got it. Sorry <laughs> yeah. for
1: past- For um, I've heard that silken tofu is not kosher for Passover from some people, so that's why I was a little bit hesitant.
2: The other common one we do is we. I just my, like my wife Shoshana makes re- like literally the best challah in the world, the best Shabbat bread, and you know she doesn't replace it with anything, just just no egg, and it's. It's moist and it's sweet and it's amazing and there's a custom in your first year of marriage to dip in in honey instead of salt and so in our house we just do agave and we we kept that going beyond our first year of marriage I, we're we're 11 years into it now so we have we have chal and agave every every Friday night and Saturday morning um, but so many other things there's so many other great things that are happening in Jewish cuisine right now and Cholent, Sholent is something that most people made with meat, but this kind of bean stew to eat for Saturday lunch is really popular coming out of a crock pot and it's healthy with just a lot of different kinds of beans. And it's always just fun, a way to warm up on a Saturday.
0: I love it. Okay. So as we close up, do you have any words of wisdom to share? Just words of wisdom from the rabbi <laughs> for our listeners.
2: Wow. So many, so many. Yeah. And I think that um, I think that it's that whatever religion we're a part of or no religion we're a part of, that we continue to kind of invest in this space of deeping, deepening our inner worlds in order to create change in the outer world. It's so easy to be consumed with all of our external tasks. And there's just so many of them. But to see that the more we cultivate our inner character, our inner spirituality, our inner kind of intentionality that we can be so much more impactful in the outside realm and it can be more sustainable and joyful for us. And so I hope we can all find those types of communities and spaces that lift us up and help us to lift up others as well. And I think the other nuanced spot is to hold the darkness and the light together. Like there, on the one hand, there's so much brokenness, there's so much pain and suffering and evil in the world, on the other hand, the world is so beautiful, and there's so much good happening, and so much to celebrate. And some people want to hide in one of those two spaces, but I think, I think good religion and good spirituality teaches us to hold both of those polarities at once in a way that's sustainable, where we can continue to repair the world, and in a way that is honest um, and um, helps us to see sometimes some uncomfortable truths.
1: That's really beautiful. Thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your knowledge with our community. And we really appreciate your time and existence in this space.
0: A quick reminder to check out our sponsors of this episode, Maxine's Heavenly Cookies at maxinesheavenly.com and you can
1: get 25% off your order with the code PLANTS25. Also, Don't forget to check out Natrive at natrive.com, N-A-T-R-E-V-E.com. And you can get $10 off your first purchase.